Well, good morning to all of you. In the season between Easter all the way to Pentecost, these Sundays, and Pentecost means 50 days, so there's about seven weeks, these Sundays are called the Sundays of Easter. And they have a meaning. The meaning of them is that we cover stories that begin to tell the Easter story in a different way. The ongoing Easter story, we might say. And so we're doing vignettes from the the book of the Acts of the Apostles. This is what happens after Jesus leaves. This is the ongoing story of what happens with the believers, the followers, the apostles, the family that is following. Typically in the book of Acts, it's in third person. It's almost like a reporter reporting a story and you can just read them. They're one after another stories and you can read them. They're in third person typically meaning that it's more of a, I don't know, a factual reporting perhaps. But suddenly what happens in this chapter that we're going to read, he goes to first person. It's first person plural, but it's first person. You'll, you'll hear it. One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for day after day, for many days, but Paul finally got annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. Uh, Just a little background there. They're in the little town of Philippi. It's a Greek city part of the Roman kingdom. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake, so violent the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, believe on the Lord Jesus 
and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that they had become believers in God. Wow, what a story. One, day to, one way to plot the arc of your life is to see your life as the sum total of the decisions you make and to follow how those decisions then turn around and make you. Just look over your shoulder and take a look at the various decisions that you have made and the way in which that plots and determines who you are and what happens to you. In All the Pretty Horses, novelist Cormac McCarthy described a decision dilemma facing the two young boys who had ridden their horses down into Mexico. When they crossed the river, they journeyed where they had no legal protection and no one to look after them. In a particularly tough situation and contemplating the stakes of their decision, the older boy gave this cautionary admission to the younger, and he said this, ever dumb thing I ever done in my life, there was a decision I made before that got me in it. It was never the dumb thing. It was always some choice I'd made before it. And the reality of life is that we, that our lives are made up of decisions that we make. So if you connect the dots one after another, from one decision to the next, you'll begin to understand what happened, what has happened in your life. Worried about the metrics of that? Are you worried about an analysis of that? Well, no worries, an old Hebrew truth would suggest that nothing is lost. Those decisions don't crush a thing to its pieces. The decisions and the things that make up the decisions are always with us. And even if you smash it so thoroughly, it seems that the atoms themselves are broken apart. Mysteriously, they reassemble, becoming something else perhaps, turning into something unexpected. Nevertheless, they are ever present, maybe in a different form. Paul and Silas followed the voice of God and wandered into their own far country where they faced the tough challenges that went with their willingness to ask. Acts 16 is intriguing because it has two back-to-back -back stories focusing on women. The first one we did not read, but it's at the very beginning of chapter 16, and it's about Lydia. She was an affluent uh, businesswoman, very unusual in that world. She controlled her own destiny. She made her own decisions. She had money, and money makes decisions something different. She was a rarity, and she traded in expensive cloth. So she had something of an international uh, corporation of her own. And the text describes her as a worshiper of God. She's already a worshiper who came to faith in Jesus after hearing Paul preaching outside the walls of Philippi, where the women had gathered for prayer. Paul and Silas came along to this prayer meeting 
And there she was. There was Lydia. She was already there. She was already interested in her faith. She knew what she uh, was about. She was an uncommon woman. Very strange to have that much money, to be that affluent. She traveled about freely. She handled her own affairs. She was largely freed to live her own life. You must know in the New Testament how strange that is. Uh, in the New Testament culture, the women were property, basically. Sometimes they elevated above that, but oftentimes not. She was influential in the developing New Testament church from this point forward because she began to finance missionary trips. She began to pay for the missionaries who broke off and went off into all parts of the world. It takes money to travel and she provided money for them. But then in this story, in this chapter, there's a second story and it's quite amazing. It's compelling about a woman whose only power came from the services she provided for those who owned her. Get the picture? She's not affluent. She does not make her own decisions. She is owned by a couple of guys probably. And she was likely astray. You begin to catch the picture of this, this particular young woman. She was astray who carefully profile, was carefully profiled for her ability to make money for the owners. That's their only interest in her. That's the only thing they care about is her ability to turn a few bucks for them. And she used her prophetic powers. I don't know what that is, a sharpened sense of intuition or what. I don't know if it's magical. I really can't really tell much about that. But she began to follow Paul and Silas. There's something in the spiritual life that she's following. She's attracted to it. So she begins to follow these guys and announcing to everybody, these are servants of the Most High God. Everywhere they went, they couldn't get away from her. They're the ones who brought the message of salvation. And she was not quiet and she was not shy. She followed them wherever they went. And it's not surprising that the Bible refers to the enslavement of this young girl as a form of demon possession. The Bible is pretty quick about referring to the demons for this kind of control. I'm not sure we would do that so much in our own day, but back in those days, that's what they did. She was a girl stripped of her personhood. They only cared about what she could generate for them. That's their only concern. And that, was, that justified the slavery. And evil lurks in the dark places in the world, and one doesn't have to be religious to think of this as some form of demonic evil. Whether you believe in demons or not almost seems to not matter. Uh, in the nature of evil that's being done in our, our world, you know, occasionally I hear somebody who's pretty clearly not a spiritual person, but they talk about the demon that got inside so-and-so who did such and such. A few years ago, this has been a, a while back, but we came face to face with the reality that three young women had been abducted and held captive in the hellish squalor of an abandoned house. 
they had been picked up by a man who innocently offered them a ride. And they foolishly made a decision that altered everything about their lives. Everything about their lives shifted when they got into the car with this guy. He put them in, in a nightmarish prison where they were sexually abused and tormented by their captor for a decade. A decade, can you believe that? These three women and now a six-year-old girl who had been born in captivity were all dramatically rescued after 10 years of living in a house that to the neighbors had all the appearance of just being a vacant, rundown shack. No one had an idea. This occurred right in the neighborhood, don't you know? And what does it take to get us to notice something in the community? What, what has to happen for us to pay attention to the signs that may be there that no one else is paying attention to? The text is clear on this matter. The only ones who rose up to protest were the slave owners who raised their voices clamoring because someone had upset the system. In an ironic twist, the, the uh, slave owners demanded justice. They demanded justice for their egregious loss. And thus Paul and Silas were beaten severely and thrown into prison, and it was the price they paid for doing something to intervene. This is what happened in response to what they did. My goodness. They did the right thing, and they were punished unjustly, making one wonder whether the community ever wants to disturb the status quo. Often it's all a part of a carefully balanced world where there are some who profit at the expense of those who actually give of themselves to produce. Even the good folks in a community are woven carefully into this acceptance. The good folks, that would be us, are woven into this acceptance of the way things are. This is just the way things are, we might say. What can I do? I love what the late Congressman John Lewis taught us. Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Don't you just love the spirit of that? John Lewis, who paid the price in his life, understood this deeply, deeply, in a way in which most of us can hardly imagine. And rather than complaining about their pitiable situation, Paul and Silas began to pray, and they broke out into songs, hymns, it says. These are well-known songs in the faith already. They're singing the songs of the faith. They opened up the songbook in their memory, songs that they had been singing for years and years and years, and they began to draw upon the resources of that. And they were at peace with the troubles they made for themselves because they had done the right thing and were willing to pay the price for doing so. What they did was a powerful refusal to invest in the accepted narrative 
that would suggest nothing good could come out of their suffering, that it would only produce sorrow and pity rather than choosing to seek something useful about it. And the Bible is clear, under the right conditions, we have incredible power. And usually don't have a clue we have that kind of power available to us. Did you catch that? In the right conditions, this is what the faith is teaching us, that we have so much power available to us. And all we have to do is to express it. It's an expression of our faith. So what will it take for us to take a stand for the abuse of women? Acts of enslavement that occur right in front of our eyes. Human trafficking. It goes on all across the country. It goes on in our state, in Missouri. It goes on in Jefferson City. Or how about the intentional legislative efforts to curtail or eliminate public health care for women? What are we going to do about that? Or how about the inequity of jobs and salaries for women based solely on their gender? Don't we have a thing to say about that? It's one thing to romanticize our love for our mothers and our wives and our daughters, but it's empty if we don't work to make the world safer for the sisterhood of women everywhere. God help us to determine to stand with the helpless and those enslaved unjustly. God help us to open our eyes and to stand up against injustices right here in front of us. Maybe one more line from the late Congressman Lewis. We have been too quiet for too long. There comes a time when you have to say something. You have to make a little noise. You have to move your feet. This is the time. Who knew that better in our world than John Lewis? Paul and Silas were thrown in jail for doing the right thing, for intervening in a public issue that was right under the noses of the community. With God's help, they sang their way out of jail that night. But they got there for making some tangible, something tangible about living their faith. They made the connection, they understood the connecting of the dots, that the faith is moving them to make a commitment. The right reason, the right action. Thanks be to God for the courage and for the model of living faith that we can give thanks for. Amen.